0: So, Steve, I I want you to imagine this moment when someone who you vaguely know, maybe a relative you haven't seen for a long time, walks up and knocks on the front door of your home right around dinner time. And you open the door and a little bit amazed because you didn't expect this person. And they say, Hey, Steve, I'm here for dinner. What are we having? No doubt you're taken aback because. You're wondering what, well, why, what, what do I do? And and it's an interesting. It seems an interesting thing to me. This this strange social situation where you're going to in your head, you're going to go through a whole narrative around. Well, well I don't know. What are we having? Um, how much do we have? Um, is it gracious of me to to say what in the hell are you doing here? Or. Or what? Or should I just be welcoming? And and it seems like this very awkward moment, if you will, is a lot like what we go through at work with meetings. Think about it. It isn't like we talk about meetings before they get scheduled. Meetings come in like these strange, somewhat familiar invaders into our day. They show up in our inbox and we look at them and wonder, who is this strange traveler coming to visit me? And what do I need to do? How do I, how do I respond in an appropriate way? Because actually, I, I may not want to go to this meeting. I may want to actually get work done. And I may actually think it is a stupid meeting. And as my colleague, Maya Krause, pointed out, I may actually hate your stupid meeting. <laughs> but I can't say that. I actually need to say something like, gee, I'm sorry, I can't really make it at that time. I have to apologize to you for you imposing your stupid meeting on my life. How did we get this wrong? How did we get backwards? So Steve, welcome back to part two of meetings. I hate your stupid meeting.
1: Thank you. It's great to be back. So following up on what we talked about in episode 10 about meetings, I, I totally agree with you, because, because as you were describing that, I was thinking, you know, what, what kind of emotional condition is that to put somebody in? It's a state of defensiveness, you know, whether it's somebody walking through your front door inviting themselves in, or the booking of a meeting into my nicely planned day, it puts me immediately against the ropes, and I'm defensive, and, and how could that possibly contribute? How could that be conducive to a great mental state that you need for creativity, which is what the meeting is intended to do? So that's a slipping point, right? Absolutely. But that's what we've lost. So I totally agree with what you're saying. And yes, I was going to invite you over to dinner, Jack, but you, you know. I'm sorry. I have plans anyway, Steve. I'm recording a podcast and this is Jack Skeels.
0: Welcome to the Art of Management. And you can tell I'm here with Steve Prentice, my co-conspirator on these things. This is part two of a series on meetings, a topic that's probably been covered several billion times, but we're going to go through it again as well and hope you can join us if it doesn't interfere with your schedule.
1: Meetings have always been described as the single biggest, greatest time waster in all of business, even more than emails. And, you know, that's sad in a way when you think about it, because the intention of a meeting for centuries has just been to coordinate information, to deliver information to a group of people and to do it in an efficient way. And it's just so bizarre how the the natural socializing instinct of human beings has tripped over its own desire to communicate in this sort of small encapsulated space and time. So yeah, a lot of people hate these stupid meetings and it just becomes part of life that no one really has seen an opportunity to break away from. So I'm hoping that we can talk about how we can break away from this in a way that managers and their teams can still feel comfortable. And I know that you have a great role model in Ricardo Semler, I'm wondering whether we should start by talking just a little bit more about him. Well, I love Ricardo Semler. Wrote a couple of amazing books,
0: The Seven Day Weekend and Maverick. One of the main things that he did relative to meetings was he said that we have way too many meetings. And in fact, we need to change the fundamental rules behind meetings. And his rules were really interesting. We'll talk a little bit later, maybe about the idea that meetings should be more like dinner parties than what they are right now. But here's what he did. He said, first of all, if you want to make a meeting and require that people attend, they all have to agree to attend before you make the meeting. So that's an interesting rule. In other words, I can't just basically be that unwanted guest, right? I can't just go knock on a bunch of people's doors and say, hey, we're having a meeting. I actually need to have a conversation with them about whether this meeting is needed. Now, one of the interesting things that happens then is that if if I have to go ask everyone, do you think this meeting is needed? I probably have to explain why I'm having the meeting. And maybe in the course of doing that, I actually exhaust the need to have the meeting. So instead of pulling a bunch of people into a forum, which as we talked about last time, a forum that's ridiculously unproductive, right? Like 50% or more productivity loss. I end up having a bunch of small conversations that are actually far more effective, lower productivity loss. And then I avoid having the meeting in the first place. Right. So it encourages a different kind of behavior and also then creates enrollment. In other words, we all agreed that we're going to meet, right. That assumes I tell everyone the same story about the meeting. Right. I'm not making up if you think about um, maybe I'm saying what they want to hear is just so they'll attend my meeting. Now, Ricardo somewhere. <laughs> Ricardo somewhere had an alternative, um, a second rule around this. And the second rule is if you're attending a meeting that you've agreed to attend and you feel like you're no longer getting any value from it, you can just leave. You can go. Bye-bye. I'm out of here. And in that way, when we look at what this means for an, to be a meeting organizer is that I can't make a meeting. It isn't about going into Outlook and then just dragging a one-hour slot and typing in a bunch of names. (laughs) This is a bunch of work to create a meeting and enroll people and get everyone to agree on what we're going to try to accomplish. And then on that day, on that moment when everyone shows up, i got to keep it interesting and relevant and valuable or they're just going to all start leaving. That's raising the bar on meetings because meetings are a very, very expensive event. To have inside your company
1: yeah that is something that is so often overlooked the cost you know and even if you sort of look around the room and you say you have 20 people in the room and you just sort of uh, cut some sort of average per hour rate i mean you know even if people are salaried you know they still come down somehow to a per hour rate So if you draw up an average and and multiply the number of people in the room, say 20 people, and then multiply that by the number of meetings you have in a week or a year, and then double that to account for what they could have been doing with that time if they weren't in the meeting, you could probably buy yourself one of those big mega yachts with what you spend on the meeting without that roti, R-O-T-I, that return on time invested. So yeah, it becomes a hidden sunk cost, much like email itself. So now what you're describing in terms of this opportunity to not stick around if you didn't need to, is that the evaporative meeting concept?
0: Yeah, that's uh, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, one of the things, so we piloted a method with several of our clients that is really around this idea of how do I, assuming maybe I can't break the habit of the first problem, which is talking about meetings before I have them, right? So people show up to the meeting. The idea is in the evaporative meeting, Everyone comes in and puts their agenda items up on the wall or the board. Right? And then you actually can sort them by who's interested in what. So we can essentially let people leave when the meeting is no longer interesting. In other words, the most common, commonly desired topics are the first topics we talk about. And then as we go down to the, um, the ones that get fewer votes, if you will, right, uh, other people can just take off. I don't think that it's quite the comprehensive solution, but again, it's it. what we're trying to do is just do a little shift to say, it's okay if I leave, if this is not relevant. In other words, it's better for me to not be here than to be in this meeting and taking up airspace and multitasking. And in the old days, when we sat in a conference room, I was bringing everyone else down the productivity down by having my laptop open, et cetera. Um, just smaller meetings are better, simpler, faster, et cetera. So how do we how do we turn a big meeting that's very long
1: into a bunch of small meetings that are optional in a sense? If a manager calls a meeting and they see people leaving Yeah, you can take offense, but why not do a five-way analysis? Why are people leaving the meeting? You can drill down to the fact that it's the meeting's fault for losing people's attention or just not being necessary. You can find out the solution here, and that's, of course, the, the main path for finding out how to do it better. When you do that, you're turning things around culturally. You know, think about if an employee walks out of a meeting, currently it's the employee being bad. But I think there's a terrific learning opportunity for those proactive managers who want to learn more about the art of management in the sense that you can break away from these stereotypes, these archetypes of, of how to do things, that meetings have to be a certain way and say, no, the meeting itself has to earn its keep. It has to win and keep its audience in order to be relevant and to be worthwhile. And the end result of this is going to be, again, a bottom line value for the company. And that, again, is what gets forgotten. Yeah, yeah. I so love hearing about this evaporative meeting concept. I love hearing about the idea that if I had to walk around and sell everybody on attending the meeting, I might actually remove the meetings need to exist in the first place. I love that. These are the kinds of things that these are the kinds of new age attitudes that sharp managers need to take on.
0: Yeah. It, you know, it's sort of interesting what you're saying also strikes on another thing, which is, I think we talked about it last time a little bit too, is the, the quanta problem. In other words, the, if I really just need a 17 minute meeting. Okay. If I knew that number, right. Would I make a 17 minute meeting? No, I'd probably make a half hour meeting. Right. Yeah. And in a sense, the probability. So most, if I look at my calendar, most meetings are 30 minutes, 60 minutes or 90 minutes. Right. What is the probability that the content actually fits into those slots perfectly? Very, very well, right? In fact, the probability is is that every one of those meetings is longer than it needs to be, right? Because a short meeting doesn't get satisfied, right? So um, since it's costless for me to put extra time on people's calendars, right? I, I pay no expense. I don't have to buy them the mega yacht or anything like that. I would tend to over allocate their time Yeah. now, <laughs> but that's, you know, back to your point. I agree that, that managers might feel offended or, or some affront to them, or does it, is it a sign of disrespect or something like that? Like walking out of a dinner party or something like that. Right. Um, yet I think the real question managers should be asking one is I, I would want people to know if you've got to go, you got to go, well, go ahead and leave. The exit question would be, did you get everything you need from this meeting? And I think that it's a great exit question, but it's an even better entry question. And that's where evaporative meetings came from, which is, what is it that you need to get from this meeting for it to be successful? Right. And so that way we know how to make each other successful in this meeting. So it's not about that manager's success. And this is a big change, right? is that I'm holding the meeting, you have to be here, is this hierarchical idea. And if we really go to the collaborative idea about how do we make the best use of our time, one of the key things is actually just believing that other people know what the best use of their individual time is, right?
1: Yes, and that spreads this concept right across from meeting management to leadership. Because if you are a manager who now finds you have the responsibility of convincing your people to come to the meeting, you have to actually sell them on the idea of the meeting. I can see how that would put them in a position that they're not entirely comfortable with. As a manager, if I'm the boss, I can tell you to show up, and you have to show up. Nice and easy, cut and dried. But if I have to go out and actually justify its existence and sell you on the concept, now I'm in a position of trying to convince you that the roles have been reversed. You as the employee have the power. So I again see a great pushback and a great fear that leaders will have when when their position is being challenged like this. Even though when you take this from a higher perspective, the end result becomes more engaged employees and a more efficient 17-minute meeting. There's nothing wrong with a meeting of that duration. So this is an opportunity once again for leaders and managers to reassess what it is they do and how they actually lead and what they can do to improve in this area. So we've got some great points here about, again, management in this new era, right? And and now we're challenging managers to tell people to show up for a 17-minute meeting. To think differently about the value of meetings, but also the value of retaining employees, looking beyond the meeting and saying, what am I doing to create an engaged workforce? So it's not just a matter of saying you've got to show up to this meeting. It's a matter of saying that this meeting has to show up to you. It has to be there for you as part of the culture that we're trying to support.
0: Yeah, this is the death of the boss thing, right? In other (laughs) words, when (laughs) he said boss, I actually felt myself react, right? As in, do we still have bosses? Really? Um, and, and I know they're out there. Okay. I absolutely know that they're out there and I know that there are people who aspire to be a boss as well. I mean, in, in the old days, as we know in the industrial model, the boss probably did know more and did know better and, and, and understood the big picture better, but we have no excuse for any of that. Now people are so educated, so talented, so motivated and, and it's so easy to get information around. I don't need them as an information conduit. The shift has to go from boss to I don't know, facilitator, supporter, enabler, empowerer kind of thing. Where we the job is not how do I how do I get above and control my people? Okay, it's just how do I stand behind them and support them and and grow them right? And everything that I would call a boss quality is something that I want them to be able to embody, like the ability to set their schedule, the ability to let people know what they need and prioritize their day based on the information they have, et cetera. And in that way, discarding all of these, these pieces of sort of fixed structure and the like.
1: Yes, I can understand there are some managers who want to keep things the way they were. I mean, it's nice to be on top of the heap and in a power hierarchy. And some companies will continue on that way. But it's a matter, once again, in this era where employees have so much greater choice of where they wish to work and when they want to leave. It's the whole great resignation thing. It's, It's happening right now. It's a real thing. So if I don't like this culture, then I will take it upon myself to leave. And the thing is, if the bright people who leave, the ones who stick around, you're going to condemn yourself to a mediocre level of capacity, and the company will, of course, echo that. So yeah, it's every manager's choice, but I mean, I guess that's the reason why people would be listening to this podcast in the first place, right? I mean, how can I learn to manage better? What can I do that is different from how things have been done? And we are really, you know, at the edge of a new era in terms of empowerment, not only of employees, but also of managers, not through force, but through collaboration, basically a positive coexistence. So we can use examples like Semler and the evaporated meeting concept and the dynamic element of being able to schedule meetings in a shorter time because, remember, we've got an 80-20 rule going on here, and it's a, it's a well-known fact that 80% of the value of any meeting happens in about 20% of its duration. So it's a lot <laughs> yeah, of... I
0: think that- I think that's yeah. I think that's empirically accurate. In fact, based on uh, on the roadie work that we did early on, I never thought about it in terms of that uh, that that eighty twenty rule. Um, I, I think there's another structure worth mentioning as well, Steve, which is the office hours structure. We, we've got sort of this this strange world of of big mountains and tiny little bumps, if you will, in in the landscape of time. Right in the well, the big mountains are the meetings, right? In other words, I'm I'm busy from you know, I look at my calendar, I'm busy from nine until one thirty today, and it's all meetings, right? So I I'm I'm basically will not be productive. I will get some information, I'll do some coordination, that kind of thing, but I basically won't be productive during that whole window. So that's a problem we want to solve, right? And that's the how can we think about meetings differently, have fewer of them, restructure them, shorten them, etc. But there's also the all the little bumps. In other words, no one has been able to reach me during that four and a half hour window, right? <laughs> so yes. now the world comes knocking at my door for the rest of the day, further impeding any productivity that I get, and I get all these little ad hoc meetings. Okay, and and in fact, I can literally be I can literally avoid any productivity in the day through the the combination of these two things. Right? And basically, I just have to wait until everyone goes home or starts turning off their Zoom sessions
1: and stops texting me and the like. I'm just stepping through the fourth wall of this episode for a moment to explain what is just about to happen next. In the midst of recording our discussion about meetings, ad hoc meetings and interruptions, Jack got interrupted by a text. I kid you not. This was not scripted. This happened right here at this point of the conversation. Um, the... Sorry, I just got a text in the corner
0: from um, one of our guys. Um, hey, Mike, can you tell him that I'm in a in a session right now and I'll be available at 11.30? Oh, that will be too late um, for him, probably. Um, tell him I'll just look at... He's got that... Um, do you want, why don't you check real quick and just see if he what he wants to do on that. This is a proposal that needs to got today. Sorry, guys.
1: So, Jack, you are living the exact thing that we were just talking about. The message came in, it was important, and for a moment there, preserved forever on digital, you were not able to think clearly about how to resolve the issue in the text message or how to stay in the <laughs> mental track with this podcast. You were living on that critical path. So it shows that it can happen to the best of us. Of course, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's the fact that if you have been doing back-to-back meetings all day as you said you had to, this again comes around to the fact that it's the critical path. And in project management language, everything being so butted up against each other, you cannot move anything without pushing something off the table. Now, I wrote about this extensively in my first book, Cool Time, which itself is based on 20 years of research and teaching in this area. It's the... Application like a day, for example, applying the 80-20 rule, that same 80-20 rule to a calendar. I tell people to declare a calendar as being officially full as soon as you have booked 80% of the time. Not 100, but 80%. percent you got to leave 20 for this kind of stuff, these spontaneous, unexpected activities. So you could tell this guy who just texted you, for example, you know, I'll be with you in like half an hour, I can give you my full attention at that point, because I have left space in my day for the unexpected, or you take the text right away and shift everything else down like a game of Tetris, because you do have that space, that 20% of space to move things around. This is the kind of thing that I think people need to hear, even though it's old school, it's project management, and we both have project management backgrounds... You can't work on a critical path and expect to survive mentally or physically or emotionally because there's always something new that comes in, another opportunity that you want to take on or address, or a crisis or an emergency. So everything we discussed so far in this podcast, these are vital new steps that people can apply to a better way to meet.
0: Yeah, you know, I think there's an interesting piece to that too, which is, I think in the old school, jobs were simpler, right? Another's work was less complex, um, more ni- more narrow in that sense, right? The
1: yes, definitely um, work
0: complexity is going up. I believe we see that at all our clients, and maybe that's a self-selection thing. But in a complex, uh, multi-project, multi-stakeholder environment, meetings proliferate, and work becomes far more fragmented. It gets it gets harder to get work done. In fact, and I, I think that the. I was going to this point about about office hours, which is if I don't set aside a time when people can reach me, they will try to reach me anyways, right? And so in a sense, one of the, I think a more modern structure, and we, we teach this in our trainings to companies, is set aside windows when everyone agrees that interruptions are okay, okay? In other words, I can... I know I need to talk to Steve about that today. Oh, and at two o'clock, we have office hours. So I know I can go do it then. And if I do it then, I'm not doing it during one of the other times when you're trying to be productive, right? So the, in a sense, this conforms to this idea of maybe we can take these noisy little bumps and put them in a small window. Maybe I can take those, maybe a 17 minute meeting will fit in a one hour office hour block, right okay so I can actually use and and I, I enable people by institutionalizing that there's a meeting period if you will, I allow them to play a little game of Tetris if you will and fit conversations together to be far more efficient both from the perspective of time efficiency, you know roti and the like but also from the perspective of getting the meetings out of the other times of the day so I can get some shit done, basically, right?
1: Yeah, and once again, the way these things sort of spring out from the central concept here, we're now moving into this area of expectation management, the skill of managing other people's expectations. You know, if I need to talk to you and tell me you'll be able to talk to me within the hour, then I'll be okay with that. You know, I'll be calm with that because I know I will be getting the attention I need very shortly. If I can't see any opening in your calendar because you're on a critical path for the next two weeks, of course, I'm going to push my way in. So this now becomes a skill of managing people's expectations, which again, directly correlates to what you said. This is a more complicated working environment that we're in right now than it might have been 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. But the point is we have to embrace these skills. These are social soft skills, expectation management, influence, critical thinking. These are the soft skills that were identified as the future of work well before the pandemic came along. All the people who study this stuff on a big scale, these huge consultancies out there, they were saying soft skills will allow your hard skills to actually proliferate. Because if you can manage expectations, then you have greater control over your time. So it's really interesting how these things can develop into a package of personal skills. Whether you are a manager or an employee, to get more done, just by being aware, as you said, there's bumps and there's mountains and there's smooth roads... I think people have a lot more control over this than they ever expected, including managing up to their manager and saying, hey, let's work on this together to create an environment that is more conducive to productivity. It's not in any way an affront to your authority or dignity, but together we can work on this to build one fully functioning machine, which is what your department is supposed to be in the first place. So it's not about criticizing your boss, but working in a symbiotic relationship.
0: Yeah, I can give you an example from, from Agency Agile. Um, we have a great crew of delivery coaches and and managers that help coordinate things and, and make all the ships run on time and get people onto planes and um, into client engagements and that kind of thing. There's a lot of scheduling and coordination that needs to happen around this. And so what we do is we have two meetings a week that are driven not by my, I'm the CEO, right? Not driven by my need for the meeting at all, but they're open windows for everyone else who wants to get something coordinated to talk to each other and me and get things resolved, right? In other words, it's, a, it's not my meeting, but it's essential I'm there to actually support everyone else trying to get shit done, basically, right? So it's sort of the, it's the department meeting, but it's turned inside out. And here's the interesting thing. If nobody needs anything, we cancel the meeting. The meeting is defined by its need level, okay, not by the fact that we need a meeting. And so I I think that's sort of a model in a sense. The ultimate evaporative meeting is one that doesn't happen when it's not needed, right?
1: And I think the curse that people are working under here is that old term "thwadi," which is the acronym that stands for That's How We've Always Done It. And it's used a lot in the UK and Europe, but "thwadi," we've always done it that way, right? Uh, So we continue to book meetings for an hour and all those kinds of things. So breaking away from that "thwadi" mindset, it's, it's a conscious action. So let's look at it for a moment as this notion of conscious actions. If I wanted to change habits... I personally am going to want to introduce a pilot project to my team. And I know that we disagree on this concept, but to me, when a team of people faces a change, I want to give them the security of an escape route saying, you know, we'll try this for a particular month coming up. And if it doesn't work at the end of the month, we'll go back to how things were. And I plan to make it so successful that nobody will ever want to go back to how things were. So to me, a pilot project is a great way of leading people comfortably into an area of change. But I do believe that we disagree on this point. So I would love to hear what your opinion is about establishing change through a pilot project.
0: Uh, I think that the the challenge I have, and I think the difference you and I have on this, Steve, is we're probably working with different styles of organization in a sense. Most of the work we do is with these high-performance, deadline-driven Organizations, often known as agencies, marketing agencies, advertising agencies. Um, there's a, a it's where Thwadi reigns, right? And and Thwadi it's a different version of Thwadi, which is that's the way I've always done it, right? And in other words, a lot of people are focused on uh, you need to do this my way for this thing that we're doing. So there there's a proliferation of different ways of doing things. And if you're introducing a new thing, you need to actually get everyone else to unclench their fingers from the death grip they have on the way they do it, right? And if if I give them optionality, like say, well, you know, give this a try. It's a pilot. If you don't like it, we can go back. Um, I'm doomed right at the start. <laughs> okay. In a sense, the optionality translates, I think, inside their heads to something like okay, if I just ignore this thing for long enough, it will go away. And maybe I'll make a few gestures in that direction, but I've got shit to get done and I don't need this. Maybe also, hey, this is how I've done it for 11 years. What the hell do you know about how I should have to work? And in fact, nobody learns anything new with that approach, right? When we're introducing things, we don't pretend or feign at all, which I think you are, and I get the way you're describing it. We don't feign that, well, maybe this won't work, and if so, we can rewind or whatever. Um, we know these techniques work. And the question really, we sort of raise the challenge, which is you can get the benefits of these techniques if you actually commit yourself to doing that, and, and we hope you're good enough to do that, right? <laughs> so we really put it as a challenge, and, and the question is, how good will you get at doing it? Not whether you're going to keep on doing it after some some period of time. So, um, a lot of the trainings we do are very short form. Like we'll go there for four days and hope that they keep on doing it for four years, right? So, we we do need that sort of um, you're you are committing, right? And you're going to learn how to do this. And you're going to learn to see the benefits and that kind of thing. I, I think those things are are things that a lot of pilot projects um, often don't do or or, or only let me put it this way only the really good pilot projects do it right a really good pilot project sets out with we're going to measure some things we're going to engage with everyone we're going to enroll everyone in the idea that we're piloting this thing isn't that cool and let's see if we can get that to work and And you can build a lot of energy, but a lot of pilots um, are inadvertent pilots, right? Like, hey, we've got a new project management system. Uh, Don't forget to put your projects in it, right? And and the thing gets populated with junk, right? And then eventually no one uses it, and that was a pilot project. No one called it a pilot project, but no one put the commitment behind using it, right? Uh, to actually get it over the hump and make it a a a real live integrated part of the operation. That's a long-winded way of answering that question, um, but I, but I do think that you know we look at larger organizational change initiatives, so I, I get a what you know, the more change there is, the more people there are hanging on to the existing process, and the more optionality means the less likely you'll get anywhere.
1: So, Jack, as usual, we have covered a lot of ground in this episode, examining some of the finer points of why people hate going to meetings. So, to wrap this up, do you have any closing comments? Uh,
0: so, I'm going to go to um, Ben Zander of The Art of Possibility, another great, great author. And if you get a chance to watch his videos, they're fantastic. In The Art of Possibility, he talks about rule number six, and uh, it serves stop thinking that you're so damn important or something like that. Right. And I I think we need a rule number seven or rule number six for meetings, which is stop thinking that they're so damn important. The, uh, the need to communicate is, is completely valuable. The need to communicate should be driven by the actual need to communicate. Right. And, and I think that if we go to the very simple example uh, which I did very early in my career, and it was so ridiculously effective. I'm so happy that we now do it again in, in these modern days, um, which was the let's get to f- together for 15 minutes and everyone gets a chance to talk about what they need, what's going on today, et cetera. The stand-up meeting, what a what a magical thing when it just runs so simply and non-hierarchically and we just get all the information out there. So I I, I encourage everyone to... Um, stop being so serious about meetings. Stop, stop making so many. Stop, stop trying to make them so formal and so big and so agenda laden and all that kind of thing. And go down to what do we really need to talk about and what's the best way to do that?
1: Great. And where can people learn
0: more about the art of management? Thank you very much. I'm so caught up in this in this topic and everything Steve. Um if you want to listen to more more of this, more of Steve and I and uh hopefully this is our last meeting uh, podcast but maybe it won't be. You can reach us at theartof.management. That's the art of all one word.management. Find more information on our podcasts and the like and uh, if you want to research some of my interesting articles, they're on agencyagile.com. And Steve has a new book out as well. We should plug that just for a
1: minute. Steve, you want to say a few words on that? It's called The Future of Workplace Fear. It's about how human reflex can stand in the way of digital transformation. And it ties directly into the middle of what we've been saying here. Because when people are afraid to make changes, whether it's a management change or a technology change, it can just throw everything completely out the window. I would love to talk more about this. I don't know. Let's say what? Tuesday? Let's book a time for Tuesday at two o'clock. You good for that? Oh, let me check. I need to get some others.
0: Oh, I have a meeting then till 5. How about Friday at 9.30 to
1: 10 I have open, possibly? Oh, no can do. I'm seeing people at that time. I'm kind of slammed that day. How about Monday morning, 7.30 Eastern Time? I'll tell you what. Why don't I have my
0: calendar ping your calendar and they can figure something out. How about that?
1: I'll try that, but I'm getting a new calendaring app, so it might not work. But I'll